So with that, um, that's all I have. So I'm going to invite Lindsay up here, uh, and she's going to read to you from Genesis chapter 32. If you have one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's on page 27. So if you would, like we do every week, as much as you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We come to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with them. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 female or male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove by drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and said, and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your, sh- your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed them. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for those today who are wrestling with you, who have tried with all of their might to secure the blessing that comes through faith in Jesus and yet find themselves disappointed unsatisfied and empty time and time again. I ask that today you fill our cups with the joy of the Lord. I pray that you help us to see your face in the preaching of your gospel. I pray that you lift our heads and help us to understand that you are God and there is no other. 
And I would simply ask, I just sense my own nerves today, a, a desire to have honor and blessing from other people. And that's just not where it's going to be found. So please humble my heart before you, first and foremost. Receive this message first as an act of sacrifice and worship to you. And then through that, through that gift, would you please bless my listeners with a sense of your glory, your power, your might, your worth, your love. Would you do these things for us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Okay, uh, let's start here with a show of hands. Who of you has been confused by this passage before? Just go ahead and raise them up. Okay, go ahead and keep them up if you're still confused by the passage. Okay, good on you all for keeping your hands up and being honest. Shame on the rest of you for lying. It was the, the great reformer, Martin Luther, who said about this passage in Genesis 32 that it is one of the most obscure in all of the Old Testament, which, if we're being honest, is quite a thing to say about the Old Testament. A lot of obscure stories in there. This is one of those stories that, once it becomes familiar to us, it stops feeling as truly weird as it really is. You know, I had the privilege last week of sitting with a friend who's relatively new to the Bible, and when Aaron had finished reading Genesis 29, if you remember the story of how good old Uncle Laban went ahead and switched out his ugly daughter for his beautiful daughter so that Jacob would marry her, he turns to me at the end of the reading, and it's just basically like, what the heck? (laughs) And here's the beautiful thing about that. That's how you're supposed to react to that story. Similarly, when we read this passage today, it's actually designed to get us to start asking questions. It's designed to force us to reread it and to reread the entire story surrounding it. And then from there, to reread the whole entire book of Genesis once again. And then ultimately, to reread our own lives in the light of this story. So here's what I'm going to argue today that the key to understanding Jacob's life emerges from this wrestling match. The key to understanding Jacob's life emerges from seeing his interaction with God here. And here's the thing I want you to walk away with from today. God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough. Pretty simple, right? Like, I I was kind of ashamed of making that the main point of the sermon, but here's why I'm ashamed of that. I don't actually believe it. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you don't always believe that either. And so we will see how God's grace is enough in four aspects of this story today. We see it in Jacob's solitude, in his wrestling, in his weakness, and in his blessing. Those are the four points you'll have on your bulletin. God's grace is enough in Jacob's solitude, his wrestling, his weakness, and his blessing. So for those of you who are keen observers of bulletins, you'll notice that we're actually preaching all the way from like the middle point of Genesis chapter 30 through Genesis 33. But here's what I'm going to do here. Here's how all this is going to work. This wrestling match is going to provide us with plenty of opportunities to look backwards and forwards on Jacob's life. So as I tell this story, we're going to hit on chapters 30 and 31 as though they were flashbacks. And so I guess just hang in there with me because it's either a really great idea or a really bad idea and I don't feel like there's a lot of middle ground in between but here's the thing we can rest assured about regardless of that God's grace is enough okay so everyone with me we're good all right let's get started Uh, part one God's grace is enough in Jacob's solitude In Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 23, it's in the dark of the night that Jacob takes his wives, his female servants, who we learned last week are his baby mamas, and his children, and he sends them over to the other side of the river Jabbok. Then we see that Jacob, all of a sudden, is left alone. And it's been a long time, maybe years, honestly, since Jacob had truly been alone like this. Chapter 32 began with Jacob's return to the promised land. When he returned in verses 1 and 2, he's he's greeted by an encampment of angels, an army of heavenly beings. This is good news for Jacob because we read in verses 3 through 6 that when he sends some messengers to go check in and see how his brother Esau is doing, he finds out that Esau is coming at him with a horde of 400 men. It's a small militia. 
And not to put too fine a point on it, but the last time two brothers met in a field in the book of Genesis, things didn't go extraordinarily well. So Jacob is struck with fear. A fear he hadn't felt for some 20 years. Jacob left the promised land some 20 years ago because he had stolen the birthright blessing from his older brother Esau. Well, they're twins, but Esau came out first, and so that matters. Now, remember... Jacob dressed up as his brother in order to trick their father into giving him the blessing. Their blind dad asks, who dis? And Jacob tells him, I am Esau, your firstborn. Their dad doesn't quite believe him, so he says, come over here. Let Let me feel you. Let me smell you. But Jacob, being a master deceiver, is wearing his brother's clothes in order to smell like him and has covered his arms with goat hair because apparently... Esau was an appallingly hairy man, like, like three steps back on the evolutionary chart sort of guy. So if it's not entirely clear, this does not exactly speak highly of Jacob's character. Stealing a blind old man's money isn't typically the sort of thing you think that the heroes of the Bible are going to do, but Jacob does. So Jacob lied to his father and stole from his brother. And his brother Esau comforted comforted himself with thoughts of murder, exclaiming, Is he not rightly named Jacob, which means a deceiver, for he has cheated me these two times now. And he goes on to mutter, When dad dies, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that guy. In the midst of all this, Jacob's mother, the only person who ever really loved him, got wind of it and told Jacob, You've got to get out of here. Like, you've got to leave. So Jacob left the promised land. If you recall, being the inexperienced outdoorsman that he was, he chose a rock as a pillow. Not the brightest bulb. Um, But that night, as his head rested upon that rock, he saw a vision of angels going up and down a stairway to heaven. It was a sight granted to so few on this earth. It was a vision of heaven coming down to meet earth. It was a vision of what contained just a small kernel of the promise of how one day God was going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth and within his own body. But I get ahead of myself. Because as Jacob laid in solitude back then in chapter 28, he stands in solitude now in chapter 32. Which is to say, though, that He's not really alone at all. A vision of angels when he left, a vision of angels upon his return. God has been with Jacob this whole time. Jacob's never truly been alone. Now, there's something to be said here for when we get alone, though, isn't there? Like, we put such an emphasis on community here at the crossing, and I, you know, I think rightly so, but perhaps we put so much of an emphasis on it that at times we sort of exclude the the more personal, solitudinal aspects of Christian discipleship. Now think about it like this. Um, Have any of you guys ever known someone who had like a really wonderful experience with a Christian community, but then they leave that community and their faith just sort of shrivels and dies? Like this happens a lot in college towns like our own. A college student gets involved in some sort of church or some sort of parachurch ministry and they just have this explosive season of growth. They start saying and believing Christian things, but then they leave college, they move to a big city, they get a new fancy job, and their faith just sort of withers. Or, on the other hand, have any of you ever known a child from a Christian family who was like the most well-behaved, the most obedient, the most put-together, the most clean-cut, whatever. Like, you guys all know the kids I'm talking about. Anyway, he's, he's the kid who has all this external conformity. But then he goes off to college, and he loses his faith. And whether or not the crisis of faith emerged before or after he started sleeping with his girlfriend, he says it has nothing to do with that, but, the, you know. Or it could just be a person going through some sort of personal crisis, And they just need to get God back in their lives. But after the problem is solved or some time has passed and the problem doesn't seem as big as it used to be, they end up falling away from the church and falling away from their faith. Do you guys know people like this? Are you a person like this? What do these things all have in common? What's going on in each of these cases? You know, all these situations, people are able to be religious Christians 
because of external circumstances, whether it's just like the thrill of a new community and new experiences or the pressure of a believing family or just like the external pressures of life. In each case, it's, it's external, it's circumstantial, it's social. It hasn't been made personal. So let me be clear here, though. Like God does use college ministries, and he uses wonderful experiences with, within Christian community to draw people to himself. And God uses faithful families to draw children to himself. Praise God for that. And God uses personal crises to draw people to himself. These are all things that happen. I mean, for crying out loud, isn't that exactly what Jacob is experiencing right now? But here's the point. Your relationship with God has to be personal. And what you do with your solitude is a good indication of just how personal it is. And trust me, like as someone who like honestly struggles a lot to maintain a consistent prayer life, like this idea convicts me as much as it convicts anybody in this room. But it was the Archbishop William Temple who said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. And it was listening to Tim Keller talk about this that helped me understand it. Now, picture this. Imagine you're standing at a bus stop with nothing else to do. Like, you, you dropped your phone in a toilet, so you're not checking that at all, because that'd be gross. What do you think about? What are you thinking about to comfort yourself in your boredom? Do you think about your job, how you can make more money? Do you think about your bank account, how you need more money in there? Do you think about that guy or that girl that you're interested in? Do you think about the other people praising you for a job well done at work? Or do you think about all the things you're missing out on on Instagram and all the likes and doodads that the the youths are into? What do you comfort yourself with? Because whatever your mind goes to, and Aaron talked about this at length last week, but whatever your mind goes to, at least in this case, these are like little mini functional saviors. It's not like the full-blown thing that you're going to rest your identity on and rest your ultimate hope on, but they're, they're the sort of things that fill your mind with just like little snacks when you could be just eating from the banquet of God's table. Like you end up starving your soul of the one thing that will truly satisfy it when you think about these things, and that one thing that will satisfy it is God himself. And so in truth, if you are a Christian, in the midst of your private thoughts, the grace of God is enough for you. The things you are anxious about, God's grace is enough to provide for you. In the midst of your loneliness, God's grace is enough for you. In the midst of whatever occupies your solitary mind, however big or small, however good or bad, God's tender grace is enough for you, as we will see in Jacob's life. But understandably, and for anyone who's ever interacted with God, you get this. Interacting with God is not always comfortable. And Jacob learns that in rather dramatic fashion, so we move to our second point. God's grace is enough in Jacob's wrestling. So Jacob's time of solitude is short-lived because before verse 24 even ends, out of nowhere comes this man who just starts to wrestle with him. Now, I'm not sure if any of you were high school wrestlers excuse me, or anything like that. I wasn't. Um, The closest I ever came was when I was roommates with my buddy, Nick, um, who happens to be the Kenyan son-in-law. Are the Kenyans here today? That's too bad. They should really know this story. Um, So Nick always treated me like a brother, which is to say he treated me like a little brother. On more occasions than I care to admit, he'd just come after me and we'd play this game that he liked to call Breathe My Breath. So he would breathe in my face, and I would do everything in my power to avoid it. So pretty solid strategy for him was to try and pin me down, you know, kind of incapacitate my arms and my legs, and then just breathe on me. This game got much harder, by the way, when he'd been trained as a deputy within the county jail. <laughs> so don't, don't judge. You know, we were young, like mid to late-ish 20s. but here's the point wrestling is exhausting it's especially exhausting when you're not breathing but like even without that it's exhausting 
It's not like other exercises because you're not working a specific muscle group. You're working all of them as hard as you can all at the same time. And even like a little five-minute match will leave you exhausted and sore the next day. And here, Jacob, he's like almost 100 years old, and it says in verse 24, he wrestled until daybreak. I mean, my goodness. So what's going on here? Um, at some level, God is teaching Jacob. No, no, not, not at some level. At a very personal level, God is teaching Jacob a lesson. He's teaching Jacob something about himself. Here's the thing about wrestling. It's the exact opposite of dancing. When you dance, if, if you know how, like your moves with your partner complement each other. You move with one another. But when you're wrestling, it's the exact opposite. You're trying to oppose every move of your opponent. And when you're wrestling, you're not necessarily trying to overpower the person. You're manipulating the other person's body to try and find some sort of strategic advantage. You're trying to manipulate the other person with all of your strength. And isn't this just typical of Jacob's life? I mean, for crying out loud, the guy was wrestling Esau in the womb. He went from there to spend a whole life wrestling for the affections of a father who loved his brother more. And if you don't think that that had an impact on Jacob's life, you know nothing about humanity. Wrestling after wrestling, manipulation after manipulation. He manipulated his hungry brother and convinced him to give up his birthright inheritance for a bowl of soup. He manipulated his father by pretending to be Esau to get the blessing. And when he meets Laban, he finally finds a wrestler in his own weight class. Laban manipulates him into marrying his undesirable daughter. Now, we all know Laban is not going to win any father of the year contests, but he does beat Jacob in this match. And now Leah is someone else's financial burden. Not to be outdone, Jacob, after serving Laban for 14 years in order to marry his two daughters, back in Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 through 43, Jacob, is, he's, just, he's ready to get out from underneath his uncle's thumb. So he gives Laban a deal that Laban can't refuse. Jacob, who turns out to actually be a pretty successful shepherd, you know, who would have thought, a little mama's boy, he tells Laban, I'll continue to shepherd your flocks. You just, you just give me all the multicolored ones, all the spotted, striped, mottled, whatever. This has an advantage for Laban because these multicolored sheep and goats are always like the smallest proportion of the flock. So he'd be paying Jacob like a tenth of what he'd be paying any other servant. And it had an advantage for Jacob because Jacob would be able to get one over on manipulative Laban because Laban wouldn't be able to say, oh, you're stealing from my flock or anything like that. So it has that advantage for, for Jacob. But like a professional wrestler, Laban uses his special move. He removes all the multicolored animals from Jacob's flock and gives them to his sons. So again, not to be outdone, Jacob sets about trying to wrestle and manipulate nature itself. In chapter 30, verse 37, all the way out to the end of the chapter, you have this story that honestly just raises the eyes of a lot of skeptics. So let's just dive into it for a moment. This is a little like apologetic sort of thing, I guess. Um, Jacob takes these sticks, okay, and he strips off the bark in such a way that they have these stripes on them and puts them in front of breeding animals. So what Jacob is doing here is he's engaging in a commonly held superstition in the ancient Near East. That somehow by showing like this striped stick to these animals who are doing their thing, it'll somehow leave an impression on that embryo. Now remember, these are, these are pre-scientific people, and if we're honest, like the Bible is a pre-scientific book, because today we understand that this idea is like totally ridiculous, right? But the Bible isn't telling us how to do agriculture. It's not instructing us on how to breed goats, thank goodness. It's not even telling us whether or not this worked. It just shows us that Jacob is trying every single manipulation that he can think of. If anything, it was Jacob's selective breeding pattern, allowing the strong animals to breed in his own flock, which were more than likely had like a mixed genetic background, which would provide for the spots and all that sort of stuff. It was that that ended up helping him. But, I mean, here's the thing. The main point is that whether in spite of Jacob's manipulation or because of it, God blessed his flock. And over the next six years, Jacob's flock grew so dramatically, there, there's just no other explanation for what he was able to do with those animals other than the intervention and the grace of God in his life. So that's it. So with his newly acquired wealth, Jacob has a visitation from God in chapter 31, verses 6 through 13, and he's instructed to go back home. So what does he do? 
He gets a word from God, and he tries to manipulate another situation. As chapter 31 continues, Jacob waits until it's time for Laban to shear his flock before he makes his exodus from Mesopotamia. So as we're all aware here, the shearing process is quite involved, isn't it? You know, it's like you're, you get all your sheep and you start shearing them and for days on it. We, none of us do that. It's a, okay. So, <laughs> like, it, it's, a, it's a long, involved process. It takes a lot of days. takes a lot of people. There's feasting. There's drinking. There's all sorts of things that happen. Jacob's like, here's, here's where I can get away. He waits. He manipulates the situation. He gets out of there. And then when Jacob arrives back in the promised land, what does he do? He tries to manipulate his brother again. We read in chapter 32, verses 6 through 8, that when he hears that Esau is coming at him with a small army, he schemes and manipulates the situation and divides his possessions in two. That way, if Esau attacks one, at least Jacob can get out of there with half of his stuff. And then later, he tries to appease his brother by sending him animals upon animals. It was a gift fit for a king, a gift fit even for a pagan god. Manipulation after manipulation, wrestling after wrestling, and now he is in hand-to-hand combat with God himself. He can see that in each instance, God has matched every single one of Jacob's manipulative moves. Because Jacob was never really wrestling Laban. He was never really wrestling Esau. He was never really wrestling Isaac. This whole time, Jacob has been wrestling God. When he manipulated his father and brother to gain acceptance and wealth, how did he end up? He was rejected and empty-handed. We read in his prayer in chapter 32, verse 10, that when he left the promised land, he says, for with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan. So Jacob, at 70 years old, what does he have to show for it? A stick. Not super impressive. Those are free. Like, you can get them anywhere. (laughs) You know? He wrestles for love. He sees Rachel and tells himself, if I can just have her, everything will be better. But when he wakes up with Leah in the morning, you can imagine his sense of disappointment. And someone somewhere reimagined that next morning, saying this. Jacob wakes up. Leah? What are you doing here? Did I not call out in the darkness of the night, O Rachel, my Rachel? Why have you deceived me? To which Leah could aptly reply, Did not your father call out in the darkness of his own blindness, O Esau, my Esau? Why did you deceive him? The poetic justice of God in Jacob's life is truly astounding, and there are many more instances of it in these few chapters. So, but I, you know, for the sake of time, I'm just going to encourage you guys to read that on your own. What we see is that in spite of Jacob's manipulation, in spite of his scheming, in spite of his wrestling, God's grace was enough for Jacob the whole time. Jacob was blessed by God even in the midst of his wrestling against him. And so before we move on to the blessing, though, I just want to ask the question, why do you think God let things go to such an extent in Jacob's life? Like, why do things this way? Why wrestle with him throughout the night? And for that matter, why let him scheme and manipulate and fail and fall on his face throughout his entire life? Why do those things? Couldn't God have just told him very early on, like, listen, Jacob, I'm going to save both of us a lot of time right now. My grace is enough for you you'll be fine. You don't need to wrestle. You don't need to do these things to secure the blessing. I got you. Why does God go through all this trouble? Why does he do this in such a convoluted and complicated way? As every parent of a teenager will tell you, some truths you just don't learn by having other people tell them to you even if you hear them from the mouth of God himself. It's throughout these chapters that Jacob is promised over and over and over again that God is with him, and yet he schemes, he wrestles, he manipulates up until he finds himself with utterly no options left on the table. If God had just told him again, hey, buddy, I'm with you, there's a real sense that Jacob would have walked across the Jabbok an unchanged man. But because of God's hands-on approach, Jacob leaves this a new man with a new name. Sometimes hardship is the greatest teacher that we have. And at the risk of comparing God to Joe Biden, he is a tactile God. There's one person who got the politics joke. That's great. He's a hands-on savior. In the midst of your own wrestling, your own manipulations, your own trials, do you need to hear that God's grace is enough for you? Of course you do. That's why we have God's word. 
But how do you go about feeling that God's grace is enough for you? The great hymn tells us, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. And as Jacob wrestles through the night, as his own morning is about to break, he's confronted with his own weakness. And so we move to our third point. God's grace is enough in Jacob's weakness. Chapter 32, verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. That's a little interesting here. Jacob has been wrestling with this guy all night and has nearly drawn him to a standstill. And then what happens? The guy touches his hip. You know, in my house, we have boops and we have bonks. A bonk is a major fall, like something that causes some damage, something like what happened the other week when Emmy was chasing a bunch of bubbles that my wife was blowing for her. And then she tripped on part of the patio, went face first into the cement, bonks her face, is a little scraped up, a little bloody by it. That's a bonk. But a boop is what Emmy does to me when she's trying to avoid sleep. She'll look up at me as I'm holding her in my arms, touch my nose, and go, boop. (laughs) Boop, dad. That last part was mostly for my wife. (laughs) So the Hebrew word in this passage here that we translate as touch is actually, that's that's the right word. He touched his hip socket. He touched his thigh. God booped Jacob's thigh. And suddenly, the whole thing is out of joint. So what do you think Jacob realizes at this point? This guy's been holding back. This guy has incredible power. This guy must be God himself in human form. You'll realize that in wrestling today, we categorize people by their weight class. You know, I've tried to wrestle Tyler Dell, who actually has some wrestling experience. Guess who wins that match easily every single time? Tyler does. I'm just grateful he doesn't make me breathe his breath. So let me ask you something. What weight class would you put God in? God is letting Jacob wrestle him to a standstill. God is willingly restraining himself and making himself weak in order to show Jacob his own weakness. Jacob has been running from his weakness his whole life. He was the homebody. His brother was the skilled hunter. He left home in a financially weak status. Jacob had a weaker mind than Laban. Laban got one over on him time and time and time again. Jacob was weak in the midst of family conflict and just rolled over when his wives and girlfriends fought among themselves. And as he leaves Uncle Laban and approaches brother Esau, He's confronted once again with his relative weakness in the face of the 400-man militia. He's used every bit of cunning, every bit of manipulation, every bit of strength that he has, and it's still not enough. He has no other options besides owning his own weakness. At some level, Jacob knew this, right? Like God was graciously bringing him to this standstill his whole life. If you read the words of Jacob throughout chapters 30 through 33, what you'll see is a man marked by an increasing sense of humility, an increasing sense of his own weakness, and an increasing sense of his dependence on the grace of God. This happens even as Jesus, or Jesus, Jacob continues to manipulate and scheme until all his wisdom, all his scheming, all his strength turn out not to be enough. It's never been enough. And so his hip is thrown out of joint. And his hip will become this perpetual reminder to him and his descendants that when you have a real interaction with God, you leave having learned how weak you are. You leave with your pride shattered. You leave with your strength defeated. You leave with your heart changed. You leave with a limp. But when Jacob recognizes his own weakness, what does he do then? He holds on. He holds on to God with all the strength that his weakened body can provide. And I would ask you, is this how you deal with your own weaknesses? Does your weakness cause you to grab onto the grace of God? 
You know, we, even, we often talk here about how the grace of God is enough for our sin, which is, you know, good and right. And honestly, like, I think it's the only way to overcome the besetting sins in our lives is to understand that the grace of Jesus forgives us of everything we've ever done. Like, the grace of God is enough for that. However, how often do we think about how God's grace is enough for our weakness? Do you know that God's grace is enough for you as your body breaks down? Do you know that God's grace is enough for you even though you don't make as much money as the people around you? Do you know that God's grace is enough for you with all the anxieties you have of an uncertain future? But what does it even mean to know that God's grace is enough? The story is told of a young religious man, smarter than all his peers, miles ahead of all of them in terms of his own moral performance, well-respected by everybody in his religious community, and yet... Through his own egotistical pride in his religious strengths, he found himself officiating the mob-led murder of an innocent man. As the Apostle Paul stood over the body of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he saw Stephen's face light up as he looked into the heavens and saw King Jesus standing at the right hand of God. One can't help but think that Paul must have been confronting the weakness of his religious accolades for the very first time. He'd spent his whole life mastering the Jewish faith, memorizing the Hebrew scriptures, and yet this worthless member of a crucified Messiah cult stood in front of the crowds and expounded the whole story of the Bible and showed how it all pointed to Jesus with a power and an authority and a grace that Paul had never experienced. One can imagine Paul's bitter jealousy, and as he left to go arrest and persecute other members of this cult, he's confronted by the risen Jesus and told how much he himself is going to suffer now in order to bring the gospel to this fallen world. In Christ, Paul would be made weak. In fact, in contemplating these weaknesses later on in his life, Paul called them a thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says he asked Jesus to take this thorn away from him. He wrestled with Jesus time and time again because of this weakness. And the Lord told him, My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Thus, Paul would boast all the more gladly in his weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon him. Indeed, he said, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so have you learned how to hold on to God in the midst of your weaknesses, your trials, your temptations? Have you learned how to hold on to your afflictions, to squeeze onto your trials that God gives you? Have you learned how to hold on to those things until you receive the blessing from God that he has purposed in those afflictions? Have you ever thought about your weaknesses like that? Have you ever squeezed a weakness in order to get a blessing? Jacob was just learning too. And I know I'm trying to. The Lord never lays more on us, George Mueller says, in the way of chastisement than the state of our heart makes needful. So that while he smites on the one hand, he supports with the other. So we move to our fourth point. God's grace is Jacob's blessing. So Jacob latches onto the one who just afflicted him, And in verse 26, we read that the God-man said to him, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So what is the blessing here? Isn't it interesting? Once Jacob realizes that he's wrestling with God, he could have done any number of things. He could have said, oh, sorry about that. Didn't realize it was you. I'm going to just moonwalk my way out of this situation. (laughs) Or, you know, honestly, with daybreak upon them, a sane, per- a sane person would have realized that they're about to see God's face and would have reacted something like, ah, ah, let me go, let me go, I don't want to die. I should say any sane, unregenerate person would say that. Because in a very epic portion of scripture later on, God tells Moses, you cannot, notice here, you cannot, not you shall not, not you must not, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me. And live. So what is Jacob doing here? Like, he already has the blessing from his father Isaac. So what is he doing asking for one here? Jacob really finally realized where the true blessing is. He looked for blessing in the face of his father Isaac. 
He looked for blessing in the face of his wife, Rachel. He even looked for blessing in the face of Laban, but he never got it. He never found it in his relationships. He never found it in his wealth. He never found it in his status. In his status. He never found it in his cunning or his intelligence. He never found it in any of those things. No matter how much he lied, no matter how much he wrestled, no matter how much he cheated and manipulated, no matter how much he tried to leverage his strength to find the blessing, he never got the blessing like that. Because the blessing that Jacob wanted and the blessing that all of us need was the face, the, the presence, the grace of God himself. That's the blessing. All his wealth, all his wives, his kids, all of his stuff, it's sand in the mouth of a thirsty man when compared to the living water of beholding the face of God in, the, of beholding the face of God in Jesus Christ. So God asks him, What's your name? Why would God ask him that? Does the all-knowing God have trouble remembering names? Or could it be because the last time that Jacob went looking for a blessing, his blind father Isaac turned to him and said, Who are you? And what did Jacob say? I am Esau. So Jacob asks for the blessing, and God asks him, What's your name? And Jacob gets it. He says, my name is Jacob. He's confronted by God after exhausting all of his last efforts, after all of his cunning and all of his manipulation, after all these years of pretending to be something that he is not. He confesses, I am Jacob. I am a deceiver. I am a trickster. I am a self-reliant failure. And God's grace has been my only hope this entire time. And God turns to him and says, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Jacob confesses who he is, and now God can turn him into who he's meant to be. Jacob asks him in verse 27, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? In other words, Jacob, 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 you know who I am. Come on. You've known it the whole time, through every up and down, through every trial and temptation, through every success and failure, it's been me. It's always been me. Even when you were running from me, you knew I was pursuing you. You weren't running from Laban. You weren't running from Esau. You were running from me. And then God blesses him. It would have really been something to be there for that, you know? Like, do you guys know, like, the, the blessings in the ancient near east like they, they were verbal blessings they were communicated just through speech what would god have said to jacob at that time you know the way i imagine it at least it's probably something like this jacob i love you you're my son my child the apple of my eye i will never leave you or forsake you and there's nothing there's nothing you can do that would ever turn my love away from you. God blessed him. Has God blessed you? Have you understood that? Like, do you, do you know if God says that to you today? Does something in your heart, when you hear that, you are my son, my beloved, does something in your heart cry out, yes, Abba, Father, I am yours. So Jacob names the place... Peniel, or Peniel, I don't know. It's name. Jed can help me with the pronunciation later. He names it Peniel. We'll go with that. For he says in verse 30, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And as the sun rises in verse 31, Jacob leaves Peniel, a new man with a new limp, and heads towards the confrontation with his brother. Now, briefly here, in chapter 33, as Jacob approaches his brother, he sets his girlfriends and their kids in front, Leah and her kids behind them, and Rachel and their kids behind them. Still is a little weird, but you know, maybe, maybe I just don't understand something culturally. And Esau, upon seeing this, he runs out to greet him, falls on his neck, and kisses him as they both weep. God had already been preparing the way for Jacob's return. 
After Esau gets over the shock that his homebody mama's boy of a brother, it turns out to be a pretty good shepherd and, let's be honest, like a pretty fruitful dad. <laughs> Jacob insists on giving Esau some gifts. Esau tries to refuse, but Jacob replies in chapter 33, verse 10, No, please, if I found favor, favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Your face is like seeing the face of God. You have accepted me. This is such a beautiful and stunning picture of what the face of forgiveness looks like that it's actually the image Jesus uses when he tells the story of the prodigal son. When the son returns, he finds his father who runs out to meet him, greets him, falls on his neck, and kisses him as he weeps. So this leaves us, though, with one final puzzle. You know, on the one hand, the blessing of God's face is what we all need. And on the other hand, no man can see God's face and live. So what do we do with that? And that leads me to my fifth and final point, which I didn't include in your outlines. But the, the last thing we need to know is that we need something better than Jacob. So Jacob, even with as many lessons as we've learned from him, is not the point of this story if you walk away from here today thinking that you need to be more like Jacob, then I have utterly failed you as a preacher. The only thing that we learn from Jacob is that we can't get through the blessing through our own striving, our own cunning, or our own strength, or our own wrestling, or anything like that. We don't get the blessing through those things. So how do we get it? What we learn from Jacob is that we need someone far greater than Jacob to enter into our own stories. So let's go back to this wrestling match. Let me ask you guys something. Who do you think won? Who won that match? It's a trick question, which is why none of you are answering. Well done. You passed the test. Jacob won the blessing, but God won a son. How did Jacob win? He became weak. How did God win? He became weak. Like, I mean, again, like we've already hit on this, but how in the world would Jacob, this hundred-year-old man, draw God to a standstill? Like, the only way that that is possible is if God willingly made himself weak. And when God did that, he won Jacob. So do we not see that this is all pointing to a day when God will one day share in the weakness of human flesh? And yes, of course, we see this man's power as he strikes Jacob's, well, he doesn't even strike his thigh, he touches his thigh, which is, you know, again, it, your translations might say hip socket. The literal Hebrew word is thigh. Did you know what the thigh symbolizes in Hebrew? It's like a, an idiom for the reproductive organs. It's, it's symbolic of Jacob's offspring. God is going to bring the blessing when one of the offspring of Jacob is struck. He's going to bring his blessing through weakness. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing, the, the blessing, the blessing of Abraham might come to us through faith. Jesus came in the weakness of human flesh, and he wrestled with God, not so that he could get a blessing, but so that he could give a blessing to us. In the solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane. In his anxiety, he sweat drops of blood and wrestled with the Father, saying, if there's any other way, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, I'll be weak. Not my will, but thine be done. And as he hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the hymn writer reminds us how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turned his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You know, when Jesus came into this world, people turned their face away from him, but they're not turning their face away out of fear of the Shekinah glory. They're turning their face away from him out of disgust. Isaiah 53.3 starts with this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. 
This is what God looked like when he came into this world. He looked alone. He looked beat up. He looked weak. And he did it all so that we could look at him. So that we could see his face. 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, it reminds us about this beautiful idea that we see the glory of God when we behold it in the weakness of Jesus Christ. For God chose the weak things of the world in order to shame the strong. And that's how God wins. He uses his weakness to overcome the powers of this world. He uses his weakness to overcome our own wrestling hearts. Jesus experienced the infinite solitude so that we could experience the infinite presence of God. Jesus wrestled with God so that even when we wrestle, we can rest in his grace. Even though we deserve the curse of death and hell, Jesus gives us the blessing of joy, peace, satisfaction, and eternal life. Jesus walked this earth with a limp of weakness so that we could walk in the power of God. And Jesus did all this to show us that God's grace is enough. So uh, we skipped over a lot of these chapters today. And so what I want to do as I close here is just to encourage you to go back over these passages, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe sometime this week, and reread Jacob's life. And while you're at it, you might as well reread the book of Genesis. And while you're doing that, maybe go ahead and reread your own life. It's what God invites us to do with his book. It's what he invites us to do with our own trials and tribulations, our own successes and failures, our own strengths and weaknesses. Will you reread all of this, all of your life, all of this book, in the light of God's victory through weakness? And will you see that God's grace is enough for you? Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we stand amazed at your glory through weakness. We are humbled. All of our wrestling, all of our striving, all of our strength, that's not, that's not what gets us to you. It is your weakness that brings us into your presence. And so I pray that in as much as the truth of your word was preached today, that we all will see the face of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.